dive into our text. Uh, and we're in John 1, starting in verse 29, uh, going all the way to 42. You can find it in the, in the bulletin. This morning, we're going to be reading out of the message translation. The very next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and yelled out, Here he is, God's Passover lamb. He forgives the sins of the world. This is the man I've been talking about, the one who comes after me, but is already ahead of me. I knew nothing about who he was, only this, that my task has been given, has been to get Israel ready to recognize him as the God revealer. That is why I came here baptizing with water, giving you a good bath, scrubbing sins from your life so that you could get a fresh start with God. John clenched his witness with this. I watched the spirit like a dove flying down out of the sky, making himself at home on him. I repeat, I know nothing about him except this. The one who authorized me to baptize him with water told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit come down and stay, this, this one will baptize with the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what I saw happen. I'm telling you there's no question about it. This is the Son of God. The next day, John was back at his post with two disciples who were watching. He looked up and saw Jesus walking nearby and said, Here he is, God's Passover lamb. The two disciples heard him and went after Jesus. Jesus looked over his shoulder and said to them, What are you after? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He replied, Come along and see for yourself. They came, saw where he was living, ended up staying with him for the day. It was late afternoon when this happened. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was the one who was one of the two had heard John's witness and followed Jesus. The first thing he did after finding where Jesus lived was find his own brother, Simon, telling him, we found the Messiah, that is Christ. He immediately led him to Jesus. Jesus took one look, he, he took one look up and said, you're John's son, Simon. From now on, your name is Cephas, or Peter, which means rock. The word of the Lord. Okay, so uh, our lectionary text for today is obviously from the Gospel of John. You might remember that this is the year that we're in Matthew. During the season of Epiphany, this is the second Sunday, uh, the lectionary texts jump around. They include John. And Epiphany Epiphany is traditionally uh, the season in which we reflect on uh, revelations about Jesus the Christ, who he is in his time in our world today particularly during this season. And this morning, I want us to flip the question around and ask ourselves, what do we need to see in ourselves and in the world in light of the person, Jesus the Christ? Since the lectionary text takes us out of Matthew, um, you know, I I want us to get a little context for uh, the gospel and, and what John is doing here. We talked a little bit about it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this gospel, the uh, depiction of who Jesus is and the conception of Jesus is so much broader and more universal than you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. The picture of Christ is universal. We had the text a couple of weeks ago about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John opens his gospel with such a bigger cosmic understanding about who the person of Jesus is. And we talked a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the beginning of the Gospel of John, and that word, word, in Greek, meaning logos, right? That uh, translates logos, and in English, a lot of translations say word. 
And on Wednesday nights, uh, you might know we're reading the Universal Christ, and Richard Rohr uh, talks about the idea that try to think of um, when you see that word in the Gospel of John, capital W word, think of divine blueprint, uh, essentially a pattern for everything. In the beginning was the, the divine blueprint. In the beginning was the pattern for everything. And what John is trying to do is he's trying to say uh, this Christ that is caught fully in the person of Jesus existed from the beginning of time. Now, that's, like a, that's a really bold claim. Uh, you know, the synoptic, synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, you know, they're a little bit more, um, you know, Jesus was born, here is his life, and then you have this text uh, come along after those three Gospels were written. The Gospel of John was written somewhere between the year 90 CE and 110 CE. So it comes much later than those first three Gospels. And you can see the conception and depiction of Jesus for that time is a little bit more developed. It's evolved, you know, we're about, let's do math, like 70 years after uh, Jesus has died. And the understanding by the early Christians at that time about who Jesus was has evolved, and the evolution includes a much broader understanding of who uh, the human Jesus was, and they're starting to understand that the cosmic or universal significance of Jesus caught up in the human life, right? They're trying to put this together, and after we see this, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, later in that chapter, you get the text that we find this morning. So in the Gospel of John, uh, John the Baptist uh, is a key figure from the very first chapter. And in this gospel, he's known and kind of considered um, the witness or the seer. He's the one who recognizes who Jesus is. And we see that in this text. He he's recognizes Jesus, and he's like, here he is, here he is. He says it twice, like, here, here's this guy. Um, interestingly, in this gospel, like, if you really look at the gospels, right, we know um, each gospel is tremendously different. So if you notice, we had talked about the baptism. Was that last week? seems like it was weeks ago. Um, in this gospel, John doesn't actually baptize Jesus. Like he just kind of talks about the fact that Jesus was baptized and you have the scene with the dove and the Holy Spirit, right? But John doesn't actually do any baptizing in, in the gospel of John. So that's very different. And then we'll, we'll read next week, uh, back from Matthew, Jesus calling the disciples. And then in this text, we have Jesus meeting uh, Peter here at the, at the end of this text. And uh, well, we'll see next week. But he, Peter's, uh, like, he's called from the boat in Matthew. And in here, he's just a follower. Peter's already a follower of John the Baptist. So the, the pictures, the stories are very different. So whenever we have different stories in the Gospels, um, we should always ask ourselves, you know, what are the Gospels, like, what truth are they trying to reveal to us? What are they trying to teach us beyond just um, these are a set of historical events, right? So just a couple of notes about this text, because um, it uses a lot of uh, imagery and symbols to talk about Jesus. And I want to just mention a couple. Um, you could obviously do deep dives. There have been books written about um, the meaning of, you know, the symbols in this text. But I wanted to just make note of um, John recognizes Jesus as the Passover lamb, all right? 
Now, this uh, can be seen as a sign of liberation, a new exodus, a new exodus from, from, from Egypt. Uh, exodus in e- from Egypt was uh, the original pattern in the Jewish uh, mindset of liberation, um, rescuing the people out of bondage in Israel. And Jesus here in the Gospel of John signals a new kind of exodus, a liberation from oppression and exploitation under the current religious and militaristic occupation of their time. Uh, One thing about John being a prophetic witness in the wilderness and recognizing Jesus as this liberating figure is that he's calling the disciples and signaling uh, to all people um, a new imagination, a new imagination. I think one of the aspects of life today uh, that I think it's easy for us to get caught up in is not having an imagination. Um, we're people of routine, pattern, principle, uh, supposed beliefs, whatever those might be. And we're also really reactionary. Um, definitely preaching to myself here as I obsessively refresh Twitter <laughs> for the latest on the Trump rally or the impeachment or the newest Lev Parnas interview. What is that guy going to say this week? Point being is that we are often reactionary. We're responding to whatever is being thrown at us in the moment on a daily basis. And I think in doing this, we lose our capacity for novelty, lose our capacity for imagination. We can't imagine a world in which we are not simply responding to whatever issue. Um, And I think that's something that we need to challenge both in ourselves and in our world today. Um, what, what does it look like to imagine a world in which we are not simply just responding? How might we see something new within ourselves and discover new possibilities for our world and communities outside of the constructs that we've been given? Um, I, I really appreciate you know, your communion meditation and uh, reflecting on uh, you know, MLK's Poor People's Campaign because... Uh, that, that is a good example of rethinking possibilities for society um, outside of the constructs and conversations that most people have. Um, you know, not only was it radical for, uh, for his time, but those ideas are still radical today. Um, and you, know, you, you might know they've recently started the Poor People's Campaign again, uh, Reverend Barber and... Uh, people like Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove are really involved in doing that. Uh, but those, those issues uh, of even, uh, you know, uh, universal basic income, I mean, that is hashtag Yang Gang. Uh, that is still radical, right? People are like, you know, uh, yes, I said hashtag Yang Gang at church. Do that. Um, but all that to say is, can we imagine a, a kind of vision for ourselves, our communities, and our world outside of merely responding um, in the moment to whatever is the latest issue. This is, after all, the season of epiphany, um, the season of revelation. Um, What does Jesus the Christ reveal about ourselves and reveal about our world? How might we discover something new, perhaps something more loving, And what might be possible if we accepted an invitation to be more curious and imaginative 
about our capabilities and potentials for living. Jesus says, interesting, uh, interestingly, in this text, uh, the phrase, come and see for yourself. Come and see for yourself. It's an invitation. Uh, I want to propose that it's this experience of following Christ, Jesus' invitation here, um, perhaps by the, the process of letting go of something, um, that we might come to know ourselves and ca- catch glimpses of ourselves in light of this cosmic or universal understanding of Christ. It's bigger than simply, um, oh yeah, Jesus was this person that lived 2,000 years ago. Uh, has anybody seen the old show on ABC, Lost? It's an old show. Monica has seen it. Nobody else. Lost. Yes, it's an old, old show. Uh, I just realized this week that it will be 10 years, 10 years uh, this year since Lost went off the air. Yes. No, now you're welcome that I made you feel really old because that's like, oh my gosh, it made me feel really old that that went off. I told Monica earlier, it's, it's, like, I, uh, it's like I'm now the guy that was like, we watched MASH in my day. <laughs> it's like now Lost is my MASH. Um, anyway, all right, one of the uh, essential hidden quests uh, in the TV show Lost is each character's self-discovery. There's a main character on the show named Jack. And I liken Jack to Peter. Peter in in this gospel text today. Uh, He's anxious, he's controlling, he's impulsive. Uh, Part of his personality is what makes him a natural leader. Um, And the not-so-great parts of him make him a self-destructing addict. I mean, he is a messed up individual. And Peter was a super messed up guy. Like, if you know anything about the Gospels and you read about Peter, uh, side note, that's one thing that I really love about the Bible and uh, the Gospels is like it doesn't leave out the like crappy parts of like who the disciples were. Like Peter is an awful person. Like, I mean, he's, he's really jacked up. And here, like Jesus knows nothing about him. And he, he gives him a new name, right? He just, on, you know, first meeting gives him a new name. I don't recommend doing that uh, in, in real life. It's like you're not going to go up to someone and be like, oh, nice to meet you, Amy. I think I'll call you Amanda. Yeah, don't do, don't do that to people. People don't like it when you do that. But Jesus does that to Peter here. Um, what was I saying? I don't know. Um, Oh, yeah, loss, loss. Okay, so, um, yeah, I'll get back to loss in a second. Um, so, yeah, at the end of our text today, uh, I want us to look at, like, what is the significance, and then we'll wrap up. I want to look at the significance of Jesus renaming uh, Peter here, right? He calls him, says, from now on, your name is uh, Peter, which means rock. And I think there might be, as we close this morning, two helpful ways to understand this. Number one, we are mysteries to ourselves, uh, which I want to say is a core part of the human experience, all right? Okay, so uh, briefly, uh, I I can never speak without a a brief rant on evangelicalism. So, you know, 
humor me here. Okay, so uh, both evangelicalism and uh, progressive Christianity do two unhelpful things, all right? Evangelical, evangelicalism has the tendency to uh, use guilt and shame, um, for instance, saying, oh, you're broken, and of course you need God to fix this and save you. I'm looking at Andrea here. Uh, uh, so you need God to fix and save you. Um, usually there's some sort of like prayer or um, new moral principles for living. Uh, it's prescriptive, though. It's like, this is what you need. Do this, this, and this, and you're good. Heaven, whatever. Um, but when this doesn't work, um, and the container doesn't hold for all of the unexpected things that happen in life, uh, it falls apart. And we've heard this story over and over again. Evangelicalism for so many people it just it crumbles because the container doesn't hold enough of the complexities of life, right? It's too narrow. It's too prescriptive. Inter-progressive Christianity, right? So a lot of times the container doesn't hold space for evangelicalism, and people find uh, progressive forms of Christianity. But, uh, you know, sorry to say, like, progressive Christianity also doesn't hold enough space because it just moves to the same spectrum. So evangelicalism is here, and progressive Christianity is here on the same spectrum. And I think this, again, goes back to the lack of imagination or novelty because you're just moving to a different point on the same spectrum. So progressive Christianity says, um, you know, evangelicalism shouldn't have guilted you, shouldn't have shamed you, that was bad, sorry about that. Um, you know, welcome in to a more inclusive, loving environment. You're actually created in the image of God, you're blessed, and you're called into love. But the problem is it typically stops there, right? You've, you were here, and then you've progressed to this point. You know, sorry. Um, the problem is it's another point of arrival. It's a point of arrival. A person used to be here, and then they progress to a different point on the same spectrum. So my problem with the second worldview typically just... Uh, you know, what is like generalized progressive Christianity is that I don't think it takes grace far enough because it ignores the inherent antagonism that we experience at the heart of life. It doesn't account for the almost there-ness of life. It doesn't account for the almost there-ness of life. And I think it actually lacks quite a bit of awareness about the human experience in anthropology. Looking at you, who's in anthropology right now. Uh, okay, so uh, we don't have to get into all of that this morning, but I think evangelicalism, it fetishizes the cross, right? It uses the cross for whatever means that it wants, um, and it uses, it, uh, uses the cross to, like, sell uh, merchandise and crappy movies. Um, and a problem with progressive Christianity is that it almost completely ignores the cross and ignores suffering. Uh, Richard Rohr, that's your laugh line, uh, considers life, uh, the pattern of life, order, disorder, reorder. Order, disorder, reorder. You have a container for life, then it's broken by some sort of life experience or suffering, and then you reorder after that. So what I appreciate about Rohr's uh, pattern of order, disorder, reorder, is that it 
leaves space for light and dark, joy and suffering, success and failure, improvement and imperfection. It includes everything. The poet David White explains it like this. Close is what we almost always are. Close to happiness, close to one another, close to leaving, close to tears, close to God, close to losing faith, close to being done, close to saying something or close to success, and even with the greatest sense of satisfaction, close to giving the whole thing up. Our human essence lies not in arrival, but in being almost there. We are creatures who are on the way. Our journey is a series of impending, anticipated arrivals. Okay, so I have a clip from the aforementioned show, Lost. Um, If you've never seen Lost, this comes in uh, the very end of season three. Um, And if you haven't seen Lost... um, that's, that's on you for not seeing it at this point. So any spoilers that come here, it's, uh, I'm not going to take any responsibility for. So uh, let's watch this clip, and then we'll close. What I want to say about the clip is that even though Jack is at a point of absolute despair in this exchange, and Kate is very put together in the moment, and he's kind of ranting and raving about how they need to go back to this island where they were uh, stranded. Uh, He sounds like a lunatic, uh, but in that, he's actually the right one. Like, Kate is kind of put together. She's, like, living her life uh, back in L.A. She's moved on from the experience of... Uh, their isolation on the island, and he's ranting and raving like a madman in utter despair, drunk, uh, outside the runway at LAX. And in this moment, he's right. And there's something about um, the way she's moved on that has ignored what needs to be dealt with um, in her life and in their lives. There's unfinished business that needs to be taken care of. And even though uh, Jack is on uh, the brink of collapse, he's embracing something in life that she's not willing to look at. She's not willing to see it. And he's, uh, in this moment, trying to convince her unsuccessfully to go back to the island. And in his despair, he's the right one. And I want to close by offering the thought of the almost there-ness, the experience of being almost there. Um, That experience uh, is, there's something about it that's the heart of our human experience. We're like, we can taste it, like we're really close, um, but we're not quite there. And I think there's something about following Jesus and this invitation where he says, come and see for yourself, where you start on this journey and you can, you're compelled by it. You can sense it. Um, There's deep truth and meaning in this life. And at the same time, there's also all of this suffering and antagonism in the experience of lack at the heart of that that journey. Um, And Jesus experiences this for himself. 
suffers and dies. There's, there's an almost thereness and a not quite there about the life of Jesus and the life of the followers of Christ. Um, when Jesus renames Peter, Peter, um, it doesn't change who Peter is. Uh, as we find out in the Gospels, it doesn't magically take away his impulsive decision-making, his anxiety, or his fragile loyalties. But it's almost like Jesus' renaming of Peter is kind of like a wink. It's kind of like a wink at, I know who you truly are. Beyond all of your anxiety and control issues and impulses, it's like Jesus is, is saying something true about Peter that even Peter doesn't quite experience even in his own life, right? There's a not quite thereness to the way Peter ends up living out his life, but this text that comes along, you know, many years after Peter has died, uh, includes this renaming as almost a sort of divine wink of like, maybe Peter didn't realize even who he was, but he sensed it. He followed Jesus regardless, even in all of the messed up ways that he kind of uh, stumbled through the following of Jesus. And I think there's something there that is both a, a deep kernel of grace for the Christian life for us today, that we experience a whole host of things. I mean, we, talk, we talked about it earlier. We're a community of people that are in constant joy and suffering together, and we're just going back and forth, going back and forth. We have, you know, people that we know that are having miscarriages, and we have uh, pregnancies that we're celebrating. Um, we have folks that are getting new jobs and folks that are looking for jobs. So we, we have this experience of, oh, we're, we're almost there. We're moving we're going along, we're stumbling, it's two steps forward and one step back, but yet we're compelled by the deep truth of this universal Christ that calls us along the way, this journey towards wholeness and justice, but we never quite get there. It's quite beautiful and quite frustrating, I think. Um, all right, I, I, I say we're going to close, but we're really going to close. Um, we, on Wednesday, brought, somebody brought up this uh, beautiful line uh, from Colossians, which Paul writes, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Just, it's an interesting line. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And I think this is another way of talking about this deep truth. Um, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, it's it's hidden in there somewhere. It's like this, this truth that we experience, but not all the time. And we talked about that a lot on Wednesday, where it's like, um, you know, there, those glimpses, those moments that you have that seem um, to resonate, like, deep within our soul and our bones, and we're like, oh, it's so beautiful. And then just as soon as you, like, catch a glimpse of it, it's, it's gone. Um, and I think a lot of times we get frustrated by that with the thought of, Ah, we need to overcome it. If we only, if we were a Christian a little bit longer, if we were, uh, you know, Eric had mentioned, if I only didn't have to sleep, I could be in communion with God all the time, but I, I miss those hours when I sleep. Which I think is another way of expressing that almost thereness. It's like, if only I could. But I think the challenge today in our text and as a community is that that experience of the almost there, that if I could just, that is where the magic is. That is where Jesus says, come and see for yourself. Come and see for yourself. 
Um, and it's in that experience of not having to overcome. It's not having to be perfect. It's not having to eventually, if I do this, I will one day be whole. Or if I say the right prayer, then God will save me and I'll get to heaven. It's actually in the joy and the suffering and the experience of following Jesus in the come see for yourself. That's where it's at. And maybe that's where we'll meet the Christ. Let's pray.